Please remain in the book of James. This is going to be the first in six messages, Lord willing, through this short little epistle, one of the general epistles in your New Testament. The overall theme of the series, we're going to call it True Religion, the Fruits of Faith. And this morning, as we look at the first 18 verses, we're going to see specifically the fruit of endurance. Now, endurance is one of those traits that is only obtained through difficulty. It's a strength that only comes through suffering. It is a strength that only comes through uh, the persistent and persevering effort in the face of resistance. And so you might think that if that's the theme of this short little epistle, then, then surely it's not going to be an encouraging note, but you would be wrong. In fact, it's quite the opposite. James is a short epistle that calls us more than anything else to rejoice. That's the theme. This is going to be a series that is going to help you rejoice. It's going to give you joy. In fact, as James sets out to write this, he reminds us that as Christians, we are the ones who are saved by faith in Christ alone, and that we endure, and we endure as a fruit of the Spirit. It's given to you as an indication that you are indwelt by God, not as a requirement to prove you belong to God. It is not a short little letter of tests and examinations that you need to pass in order to gain confidence in your faith, but it is an epistle of joy aimed at helping you see what God is doing in you and for you. You see, you can rejoice in these times of weakness and in times of temptation. Now, you can be assured that God loves you, that He has given you everything that you need to succeed that He's going to give you His complete wisdom, His good gifts, that your future glorification is secure in Christ. And this first section focuses almost entirely upon the growth of rejoicing that you receive. It's a very personal matter. The rest of the letter is going to transition to your personal work and relationships. But here are the first 18 verses uh, looking in specifically at how you grow and how you mature and how you become the person really that is then useful to others within the body of Christ. In summary, we can say this, that Christians will endure by the power of the Holy Spirit until they mature despite weakness and temptation. Endurance we'll see this morning in the face of weakness and temptation. What I'd like to do is provide you with my own translation, and the reason I want to do that is because unlike publishers of translations that need to sell it to the general audience, I have the luxury of being able to provide you with something that is a little more consistent with what the text actually says, even at the expense of proper English. So I understand that it's going to be different than what you might read in your New American Standard, or in your English Standard Version, or your NIV, or your King James. But what I believe I've been able to do here is just go back and, and look at the original language and, and really just reproduce it in a very literal way. Because unlike the English translators, the original writer, who was James, didn't feel compelled to use a lot of different words and synonyms. He, he wasn't worried about repetition. He wasn't worried about the awkwardness of the language. 
because it was communicated to the original hearers, it would have not seemed awkward to them, and it would have communicated precisely what he intends to say. And therefore, if I can go back and provide a little bit of that for you during this study, I think it will be helpful. I trust it will be. And that's why in your bulletin I provided that for you. The Christians will endure until they mature, even through weakness and temptation. And so looking at endurance, let's first look at this issue of weakness. Verse 1. It begins, James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, James makes a statement even before the creeds had been written, before the confessions had been completed, before any of the rich theology had been produced. He was able to say from the very outset that he was a slave and a worshiper of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every word is important there. He is identifying Jesus Christ as equal to God. It's very important. Because James himself grew up in a household with Jesus. As many of you know, he was the brother of Jesus, the younger brother of Jesus. Mary and Joseph went on to have many children together, even after Mary gave birth to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was conceived in her miraculously by the Holy Spirit. And there is no shortage of sermons where the preacher at this point goes off on some sort of tangent about how difficult it must have been to grow up with a perfect sibling. Some little bit about what it would have been like to grow up with Jesus, the perfect older brother. But I'm going to resist that for the specific reason that there's no indication in Scripture that there was any concept that Jesus was the perfect child. In fact, if anything, what we see from Scripture is that his brothers and sisters viewed him as a delusional person who should have been institutionalized. As a matter of fact, I think if you were to be honest and you were to look at what James probably thought of his older brother as he grew up, it would be that he was nothing but his older brother. Certainly not the Messiah, certainly not the Son of God, but he was his older brother that was actually the one who brought so much shame into the family because it was on account of him that his parents had to get married. We know this from the rest of Jesus' ministry that he was never encountered by the people who hated him as anything but the illegitimate child of two sinners who was nothing but an uneducated carpenter with a Messiah complex. And James thought nothing more of him as he grew up. James thought nothing more of him during his earthly ministry. James and the rest of his brothers and sisters would have so far rejected him that as he hung on the cross and needed to put his mother into the care of somebody else, it was not one of his brothers that he chose. They weren't even present, but it was actually John the Apostle to whom he said, this is now your mother, take care of her. So it's extraordinary that James, who comes to faith in Christ later on after his resurrection and perhaps the ascension, is able now as one of the early leaders in the church prior to his early martyrdom, write this about Jesus. Not that he was my brother, but that he is my Lord and that he is equal to God. And he writes this to the twelve tribes in the dispersion not just to the 12 tribes of Israel. This is 
not a letter that was written just to Jewish people. If that's all it was, if you had to be Jewish in order to receive this, then it would make little point for us to study it. But he is looking here not at the 12 tribes in an ethnic kind of way, but rather as the Israel of God. Galatians chapter 6, verse 16. Peter uses the same terminology at the beginning of 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. You see, this is the people of God. Those who are now spread out as it were because of persecution. Those who are dispersed. Those who are in exile. And he says to these 12 tribes, rejoice. That's what the word really means. It's translated greetings quite often, but technically it's the word rejoice. And he repeats himself as he goes into verse 2, beginning his explanation. So it's rejoice, rejoice. To all of you who are the Israel of God, the believers, the one people of God, rejoice. That's the theme of the letter. It's why he wrote it. So I don't feel like there's any reason for me to hesitate here at the outset by telling you that this is a letter that should cause you to rejoice. It is not a letter that should cause you to feel some sort of regret. It's not a letter that's going to be held out over you as a standard to meet, where every sermon will end with a series of requirements that you ought to try to live up to in order to satisfy the demands here. No, this is a letter to rejoice and to see what God is doing in you and through you and in spite of you and has promised to do until your day of glorification. And so he says to them at the very beginning to rejoice, and this is a word that has built into it an objective assessment. You don't rejoice just because you're happy about something. You rejoice because you've assessed it. You've evaluated it. Uh, you've done the work that is necessary. You, you've been an analyst. And you've concluded at the end that it is worthy of rejoicing in. Notice in verse 2 that he is writing this to his brothers. You're going to see this over and over again in this short little letter. Over and over again he is going to address his brothers in Christ. And here, this is not just brothers, it's brothers and sisters. It's all of those who are Christians. And he says to them, as one brother in Christ to brothers in Christ, as one slave of Christ to slaves of Christ. It's quite interesting to me that he does not look at himself only as the brother in a biological sense, because they shared the same mother, but more importantly, a brother in a spiritual sense, and a slave in a spiritual sense. And as he sets this up and tells them to rejoice, he does so in this context. Look what the rest of verse 2 says. Whenever you might fall. Now, it's important to put the word might in there because in the original language, it is set up grammatically to tell you that it's not necessarily a guarantee, but that it's highly likely. And it's not so much that it's going to happen, but it's about when it happens. Because it will happen frequently. And this idea of falling is the same idea that we get about hitting a reef in the water that you didn't see. It's like in Acts chapter 27, 41, when a ship runs aground on something unseen. Consider the metaphor. You're just sort of cruising along in life, and out of nowhere, you just run aground on something underneath the water you didn't see. Is that the reality of trials and tribulations in your life, temptations that come? All the plans were made, everything was lined up. 
It was all going exactly the way that it should have until that moment when suddenly you run aground on that hidden reef of temptation. And as the ship is going down, all you can do is look around and say how shocked you are that it happened to you. You see, the author says there will be seasons where this fall will occur. It's a guarantee. And the fall, though it happens on a regular basis, the fall, though it happens because you are still a sinner, is a fall that is into something particular, and it is the word temptations. And once again, I'm going to choose to translate this consistently as temptations throughout this letter because the word could be translated trial or temptation. And anyone will tell you that the decision you make is based on context. And every other example of the word in the letter is the word temptation. In fact, a little bit later on, the author goes out of his way to say to us that it is not God who tempts you. So I think in order to more specifically understand this, it is better to keep in mind temptations, not to the exclusion of trials, but here, clearly, the things that come into our lives as lures that would pull us away from doing the will of God and fearing Him, and into doing what would please us instead to enjoy the momentary fruits of sin. And he says these are various kinds of temptations that come. It's a word that means complexity. It's a word that meant to describe the various colors. It's a very kaleidoscope of temptations that exist within the world today. And it is reinforced by the fact that we don't even need someone else to come in and tempt us because in our own fallen nature, we are absolute factories of temptation. There is enough in our own fallen nature, the corruption of our own sinful hearts, the weakness of our own flesh, to create a myriad of temptations, even out of the neutral properties that are around us. Now, we can take anything and make it a weapon against ourselves. And so he says to them, there will be these various temptations, and you're going to fall into them on a regular basis, even you, my brothers in Christ, but through it all you need to rejoice, and there needs to be an explanation for that. Because if my pathological weakness is going to result in regular sinning between now and when I'm glorified, then I need some encouragement. Because otherwise, I'm going to be tempted to just give up. There will be too many seasons where I doubt whether or not I'm even a Christian. And this brings up a very important point of practical application, and that is, if you sit under gospel preaching and conclude that you're not a Christian because you don't truly understand and haven't yet fully embraced the finished work of Christ, His imputed righteousness, and your security based on His merit alone, then that's healthy. But if you sit under preaching that causes you to doubt your salvation, because by looking around, you conclude that you're not working hard enough, trying hard enough, serving enough, or producing enough, then that's an unhealthy reaction. And I want to protect you from the outset from thinking that that's what James is doing here. James is going to direct your attention to several failures, but the solution is not going to be to work harder, 
but rather to turn your eyes to the finished work of Christ and see what He has done for you, and therefore demonstrate the love and the gratitude you have for Him in the good works you do, and there will be many. But they're based on this gratitude, this response to what He has done for you, because you know you're secure. You see, there's a certain approach that some people might take to the Scriptures, and especially to preaching, and that is to find all the imperatives they can in the letter or the gospel. An imperative, you might remember from your English classes, is a word that tells you what to do. And it's tempting at times to to go through and look for all the imperatives because you're like, that's what I need to do. Give me the imperatives. Give me the to-dos. Give me the list. I don't really care about the other stuff. I I just want to know what I need to do because then I'll just write it down and then I'll just remind myself every day those become my spiritual goals, my spiritual disciplines. And then I'll just do them. And as long as I do them, I know I'm good. I'll get a good report card at the end. And if you're looking for imperatives, you're going to love James. I mean, some of you might be thinking, I can't wait to be in James. I'm so glad to be out of Hebrews with all this faith stuff. Now I get to go to James where I finally get told what to do. I love James. He's going to tell me all the works I got to do. This will be a way for me to evaluate myself. I'll get a good, clear indication of where I'm at. One of those spiritual dashboards, make sure everything's in the green. And you'd be right. In fact, compared to the number of words in the epistle of James, there are more imperatives here than anywhere else. But let's understand for a moment the reason for those imperatives. Brothers and sisters, it is not for you to then compare yourself up against some standard of righteousness, but rather to see the things that are expected of you to do the will of God because you love Him. And as we'll see in a few moments, the one who loves much is the one who knows they've been forgiven much. And if you come to a letter like this over the next six times we're together in it, and you say to yourself, I need to be forgiven because I see how far I fall short of this. And then when you understand the forgiveness that is lavished upon you because of the love of God that is poured out through the ministry of Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, then the reaction of that love towards Him makes these imperatives a delight and not a duty. Now that's what I hope will be the case as we study it over the next several weeks. And so he says in verse 3 that you know, and it's a word that means to know something from experience. This isn't just head knowledge. This is experience. You know experientially. This is not something new. He's not telling them fresh teaching. He says this is something that you already know experientially. That the proving of your faith works out endurance. Let's talk about this for a moment. The word proving here is very common in this letter. It's a word that means validation. It's a word that means authenticity. It would be as if you were going through your grandparents' attic after they died and you inherited the old family house, and you come across this painting, and it looks very much like a painting that you had just observed in the Museum of Modern Art on a recent visit to New York City. In fact, it looks almost identical, and you are convinced that this painting might actually be by one of these artists, and you are thinking to yourself, oh, I have never loved my grandparents more than I do right now. 
because I am going to sell this and I'm going to get several millions of dollars from this extraordinary sale. It's going to be written up in the papers. Sotheby's sells painting for record amount. Well, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to take this precious artifact that you think is valuable and you're going to go somewhere to gauge the authenticity. You're going to go to an expert. You're going to go to somebody who can tell you certainly that yes, this is the real thing. Yes, this is the genuine article. This has been validated. That's the nature of proving that goes on for your faith. Don't you want your faith to be validated and approved? Don't you want your faith to be deemed authentic? You see, it is done here not through work where you self-validate, but through faith where it is validated by somebody else. And so the author is saying to us very pointedly that the proving, the validation, the authenticity of your faith works out endurance. You see, it is this endurance that does the authenticating. It's the agent of authenticating. How do I know my faith is real? The answer is, the Lord brings you through these temptations. And as you endure... You see his work in you, and it validates the faith you have. You see, you rejoice not in the trial. Nobody rejoices in a trial. Nobody in their right mind rejoices when something terrible and unexpected happens. But you can rejoice when that trial or when that temptation that led to sin results in you repenting and turning and knowing the forgiveness of God and seeing that your whole life is going to be a cycle of failure and forgiveness. The joy is attached to the enduring. This is what the author wants you to see. This is what I want you to see. That's what I need. Verse 4 says, And let endurance then, this agent of validating your faith, work to completion. There's the pathway. Work until it's done. Work until it's complete. When you go to the doctor because you have an infection, and the doctor uh, gives you a a prescription for an antibiotic, probably what will happen is when you go to fulfill that prescription at the pharmacy, the person who is checking out the prescription for you will say, now you need to remember something. You need to remember to take this particular antibiotic all the way until it's done. Because the temptation is going to be that after a few days, you're going to feel better. You're going to think it's worked and you'll stop taking it. That's what the author is talking about when he says something is going to work out to completion. Take the entire prescription. Let it do its full work. Go through the entire regiment. Trust God that the trial that you're going through or the temptation you fall into, it is always too long and it's always too hard. That's the only way that we describe it when it happens. Wouldn't you agree? And he says, trust me, because this is what I'm prescribing in order that through it as you endure, your faith is going to be authenticated. Notice what he says, in order that you may be complete. That's what the word means. All put together, all the pieces are there, and whole, lacking in nothing. 
That's the goal of your growth, isn't it? The goal of maturity is to be complete and lacking nothing. And when a child is raised, the child is raised so that they will then one day depart. The child is raised up so that they will go out. You don't raise up your children in order to keep them at home in their rooms until they're 40. That would be absurd. No parent says, well, I'm raising up my children so that they never leave. As much as we love to have our children nearby, as much as we love to have them visit, we love to go visit them, we really love the fact that they're gone. Not because we don't love them, but because they're complete. They're done. There's nothing more that we can do. You're raised up. It's time now to go be on your own. This is completion. Does the believer want to be complete? Absolutely. Does it remove their dependence upon God for everything? No, and that's the great paradox. But completion here, maturity, grown up into the the mature person, is the goal through all of this in the face of your weakness. Now, one of the things you're going to need to do that is great wisdom. Look at verse 5. Therefore, if any of you lacks wisdom, and we do, let him ask of God who gives God here is described as God, literally God, the giving one, the giving one who gives generously. This word generously was a word of a selfless giving. It was a selfless giving, which as one dictionary put it, has exclusive preoccupation. You ever met a parent who deals with a child in such a way that they seem to have exclusive preoccupation with that child? We have a word for that. We call it spoiling the child. You ever met any spoiled children? Maybe you are a spoiled child. You can usually tell. This is the best kind of selfless, exclusive preoccupation you can have because God takes that and in a holy and a perfect way says, I am absolutely fixated on your good. Isn't it wonderful to know that's the relationship you have with your Heavenly Father? It is not one of Him waiting for you to fail so He can punish you. It is not one of him begrudging all the times you have to come to him for help. It's one where he says that I am absolutely preoccupied with what I want to give you and do for you and how it is that I can bring you to maturity. And so this giving one, this generous giving one, gives to all who are his literally without insult, even though at times we might deserve it. He doesn't mock us for coming back to him again and again for the same thing. He's not quite frankly like I am as a human parent who can at times be begrudging of my own children if they were to come back to me time and again for the same thing. It's a way that I can sin against them by perhaps losing my patience with them or or treating them in an unfair and unkind way because I have to tell them to do something more than once. As if I've never had to be told to do something more than once. And so what he says here is that the Lord is for you. He won't insult you. He's not going to stick out his foot and trip you and then mock you for falling down. And so as you experience the cycles of failure and forgiveness, your endurance is what grows. Your assurance gets stronger. And the fruit of endurance, please notice this, is an ongoing process that leads to maturity and peace and wisdom. In fact, the joy that comes from that regular reminder of the authenticity of your faith 
is what leads to a willingness then to endure and to persevere until the Lord returns or calls you home. That's what wisdom does. I love the fact that he chooses wisdom here. We're going to talk about it at length throughout this series, but wisdom comes to us in two ways. Notice it. It's through special and general revelation. I love the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is that book that was written to give us wisdom, and sometimes it gives us wisdom by direct commands from God and His Word, and other times it gives us wisdom by saying, go look at ants and snakes and grasshoppers. Go look at nature. Go look at natural law. Go look at general revelation. Learn from what's written in God's Word and learn from what's not written in His Word but is contained in all of creation. Proverbs begins and ends with wisdom personified. Wisdom calling out to you. Personified in a fictitious woman in Proverbs 31. Embodying all of the elements of of wisdom in a metaphorical woman. It's also seen in real women as well. 2 Samuel is a great book for that. Chapter 14, the wise woman of Tekoa that goes in to essentially convince David of his error and how he's treating the rebellion of Absalom. And then in, verse, in chapter 20, perhaps one of my favorite, the wise woman of Abel in 2 Samuel 20. Joab is going after Sheba. Sheba has gone into the city. He's hidden himself there. They're building a rampart, literally a ramp that's going to help them to jump over the wall of the city and kill all the people. And then this woman, this wise woman of Abel, says, go get Joab, bring him to the gate. And they have this discussion. And as a result of her wisdom, Joab holds off on destroying the whole city, and she throws Sheba's head over the wall to him and spares all the people. You see, wisdom properly applied is a wisdom that is good for everybody. So strive for wisdom, but rejoice in grace. You need it, so ask for it. God says, I'm going to give it to you without a bad attitude for how often you keep coming back for the same help. He literally won't mock you for coming back. He provides various sources of wisdom. They are, they are woven to creation, woven into relationships, woven into Scripture. And the process then becomes a joy because you see how through these temptations, through regular failure, He is dismantling the idols that cause so much of the drama in your life. So much of the difficulty that comes from having God's instead of Him. Now, how is this received? Look at verse 6. It is received then in this way, but let him ask in faith with no wavering. That's literally what the word is, wavering. Wavering here is an issue about conviction. It's objective. It says here, don't go at this one minute thinking that it's going to come from God and another minute thinking it's going to come from another source. It's very objective. Choose the one to whom you turn. And I like that better than the word doubt because doubt is very subjective. As a matter of fact, none of us are able to do anything without doubting to some degree. Wouldn't you say? I mean, how many of you would honestly say, well, I move forward in my life without one hint of doubt whatsoever. I have absolute confidence Go ahead, try to find doubt in me. I am a walking doubt-free zone. I'm a pillar of confidence. None of us would say that. And if we do, just go through one trial, experience one temptation, one failure, and it all gets shattered. Your doubt not only extends throughout yourself, but up to God Himself. 
This is not about doubting. Doubting is subjective. Doubting is always going to be there. This is the objective side of it. It says don't waver. Once you've made your choice, don't turn around. Stop starting and stopping. Stop choosing one and then the other. Because the one who does that, who does waver, is like a wave. Do you see the repetition? Do this without wavering because the wavering person is like a wave. What do waves do? They come in, they go out. They come in, they go out. They're not just for surfing on. They live as a natural illustration, an example of what he's talking about. The tide goes in, the tide goes out. They're constantly lapping up on the shore and disappearing and receding and then coming back. He says, don't be like that because they're driven, they're tossed to and fro by the wind. They're subject to circumstances. Verse 7, for that person who's wired that way must not suppose he's going to receive anything from the Lord when he prays. Does that mean God is just reneged on everything you said earlier? No. He's saying, I can't give it to you if you don't come to the right source. You see, the issue here, brothers and sisters, is the source, not how much you believe in it. Come to the right source. Don't waver on where you go, even though there will be doubt as you go there. He says, if you come to the right source, you will always receive. But the one who wavers, who tries to get it somewhere else from the world's wisdom, They shouldn't expect to get anything. Why? Because God's changed his mind and he's not going to give it to you after all? No, but you're going to the wrong place. You shouldn't expect to get it if you go to the wrong place. That's what he's saying. And so, verse 8, somebody who's like that, who wavers, who goes back and forth, is double-minded. He is literally facing both ways. Like that God Janus, who has one face going one way and one face going the other. He says, that's what you're like. You're you're, you're two-faced. Not in the duplicitous sense, but in the sense of facing two different directions. And as a result, you're unstable. You are one of those people that no matter what happens in life, they just can't cope. They're constantly in this perpetual state of depression and anxiety and worry and woe is me because they simply can't cope with life. Why? Because they're going to a bunch of different sources to try to find something that God says can only come from Him. It's the nature of this person, unstable in all their ways. The only way to cope then with temptation is through God's wisdom and abiding in Christ. Receiving it then as an act of faith Firmly committed to the source. The fruit of endurance then is to press on in spite of doubt, (laughs) not to eliminate doubt. The only time your doubt is going to be completely taken away is when you are in glory. Then there won't be any doubt because your hope will be sight. But until then, there's just a lot of trust. And that trust is at least trusting while going in the right direction. Pick the right source despite your doubts. One of my favorite examples of this is the man in Mark chapter 9, 24. Remember, he said it so succinctly and brilliantly. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. You see, that is not an indication of somebody who lacks trust in God. That is an indication of somebody who has full trust in God and no trust in themselves. That ought to be all of our prayers. Lord, I believe by your grace, by your atoning work in my life, by by your kindness, I believe. You've opened up my eyes to believe, but help my unbelief because it is still here and it is strong. 
That is what this man prays, and that, in a sense, exemplifies it. Therefore, to waver is to deny the promise that God has made to give generously without finding fault. It is to deny the very ground of assurance that he gives us. And so, despite it all, our weakness, he continues to allow us to persevere through endurance. But look at the second one, temptation. This is in verses 9 through 18. Temptation. Verse 9 continues then. Let the dependent brother glory in his exaltation and the rich in his dependence, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. The word dependence here is the best way to translate that. Both of these brothers are dependent, both the rich and the poor. In fact, the dependent brother, he is to glory in his exaltation. He's to glory in what awaits. And the rich brother, he is to also acknowledge his dependence because he sees what he really deserves versus what God has given him. This isn't so much about money. It's tempting to look at that and say, well, this is all about money. Money is the illustration. Instead, the way you need to look at this is is anything that somebody has and somebody lacks. To the brother who has more than they need, the brother who has everything that he wants, let him always be humble in remembering what he really deserves. And let the brother who seems to be lacking everything rejoice in the fact that one day he will receive everything. This is the nature of James's encouragement. And so he says, at the end of the day, everybody is going to, like the flower of the grass, pass away. For the sun rises and with its scorching heat withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man, the man with all the things of the world that everybody seems to think will make them fulfilled, he's going to fade away even during his pursuits. That dependent brother, rich or poor, will one day pass away. Verse 12 continues on the argument here. It's quite fascinating. Notice what he says in verse 12. Blessed. Now, this is a really important word. It means to be happy. It means to be happy. You can literally know happiness. You can know fulfillment. Can I just say something? I don't want us to think that because we have this certain understanding of the depravity of man and, and, and his constant you know, failure that we ought to be a type of people that are always downcast. Like somehow the moment we seem to experience joy and happiness, we sort of want to reel that in and tame it down. I don't want to be perceived as being too happy out there. Because after all, I know the depth of my depravity. I know I'm a sinner. You should know your sin, and you should know the depth of your depravity, but it doesn't mean it has to rob you of joy. Remember, the theme of the book of James is to rejoice. Rejoice in it. How do I do that? Because I know I'm blessed. I know I'm blessed. I know that I can be absolutely fulfilled in this way. Look at verse 12. Fulfilled, blessed, happy is the man who endures under temptation. It doesn't say happy is the man who has temptation. Happy is the man who endures under it. Right? That's the theme. That's where the rejoicing comes from. Don't just try to rejoice in trials. Here comes a trial. I'm going to rejoice in it. Why? Because that's what Christians do. It shows that I'm really a believer. People around you are like, what are you talking about? No, this is not a good thing. Now, this is an evidence of the, the, the fallen world. This is an evidence of the curse. We don't rejoice in it, but we rejoice in our ability to endure. For when he has been proven, it's that same word, authenticated, he receives the crown of life. Revelation 2 verse 10 talks about this. 
It is the crown of life. It is the indication of the one who is given this sign that they have finished, they have persevered, they have conquered, they have made it through until the end. You see, it's the crown of thorns that Christ wore, and he said, It is finished so that the crown of life can be given to those who belong to Him, where we can say it is finished at that moment of glorification. The enduring is over, and all we get to now have is the enjoyment that comes from being with Him. He says here that you'll receive that crown of life which God has promised to those who love Him, literally those who are loving Him. This is really interesting because properly understood His moral law, that third use of the law, it's our delight. You know, we're the ones who pursue holiness and gratitude. We rest on the promise that Christ has fulfilled it for us, and we demonstrate our love for Him. And and this goes back to what we said earlier in Luke chapter 7, verse 47. Remember, the woman who is known in the community of being a sinner, she comes and, and through tears anoints Jesus' feet, and she kisses His feet, and she wipes His feet with her hair. And the Pharisee, Simon the leper, he looks at her and he says, this is so contemptible. If this man really was a prophet, he would know what a wicked woman this is. And Jesus turns to him and He says, you know, the person who has been forgiven much loves much. The one who understands the fact that they're not worthy of anything is the one that pours out their heart in love. You want to know what it means to love God? It means to understand the depths from which you were plucked and rescued. That's the one who loves. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, this clarifies that this is not something that God brings upon us. When he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. When the desire has been conceived, so this is when the will meets the desire, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. The inevitability. It's an inevitable process. It always brings forth the opposite of life. The opposite of the crown of life is this death. Results from your own sinful desires, it's never from God. In fact, most often the temptations that we run aground upon are the results of not loving the Lord, the results of choosing some idol instead of Him, something of our own imagination. I love the fact that when Jesus restores Peter, what does He say over and over to Peter? Do you love me? You see, love was the way that Jesus described the relationship that leads to the sort of maturity and growth that happens as one endures during temptation. Do you love me? We're enticed to go back to the old ways that we have forsaken so often. And it leads to the opposite of that crown of life, namely the sin of death. Trials are a part of the the fallen world. It's part of the curse. And that's all true. You could say that, and there are other letters in the New Testament that help us to see that. But here, I think the focus really is on these temptations, because over and again, the author says, don't think those come from God. The world, the flesh, and the devil is absolutely sufficient to cause even the Christian to veer into this destructive pattern of fulfilling the desires of the flesh. And so in order to kind of comfort the people, look at what he says in verse 16 through the rest as we wrap this up. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. You know, your hearts are wicked, brothers. You can be deceived. He wouldn't say don't be deceived if there wasn't a risk. 
So he says, you're, you're still sinners. Don't be deceived. Every good gift and every complete gift, there's our word again, even the struggles that strengthen us, all of that is from above. It's the same word used in John chapter 3, verse 7, when Jesus says to Nicodemus, if you're going to be saved, you have to be born from above. All these good things come from above. The endurance, the forgiveness. Coming down, notice it, from the Father of lights. God the Father, at the very beginning in Genesis 1-3, says, let there be light. God dwells in unapproachable light. 1 John 1-5 talks about Him as being the God of light. It is with Him where light is that there is no variation or shadow due to change. The lights that He created change. The lights in view here are the sun and the moon. That's what He calls them in Genesis. He made these two lights. And from our perspective on planet Earth, they seem to change. Sometimes they're brighter, sometimes they're more dim, sometimes they're at a different spot in the sky. They rise, they set, they have an orbit. There's a dark side to the moon. There is none of that with God. The illustration is that God never changes. What He said He's going to do here, He will do without any change. And so, verse 18, it's because of His own will that He brought us forth. This is what it means to be that new creation. Anything that we did to deserve it, that's off the table. It's all from above. It's the new heart, the new creation, the law written on our hearts, the heart of flesh. It is all given by Him. And I want you to notice there are three particular ways in which that was done. Number one, in verse 18, it was of His own will. That's the first key, is His will. John 15, 16, I chose you. Secondly, look at the agency. It is by the word of truth there in verse 18. By the word of truth. That's the Holy Spirit. It's the same phrase used in 1 Peter 1.25 and Ephesians 1.13. The word of truth is that gospel that comes to bring the new life. So it is by His will. It is by the word of truth. And then finally, what's it for? Notice what he says that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creation. That's the purpose. The first fruits was an illustration to the old covenant practice of bringing in the first of the harvest. And it would come into the city and it was a time of celebration. But those first fruits that came in, there were certain principles that were applied. Number one, it was that they belonged to God. They were His. Remember, that was your tithe. You brought it in for Him. Those were His. Secondly, they were the best. It was the best of the flock, the best of the crop. And then finally, they indicated there was more to come. So the purpose of all of this is that He chose you, and by the power of the Word, He saved you. And as a result, you belong to Him. He will perfect you. And your salvation is an indication that there are more to come. We can be encouraged then as brothers and sisters in Christ to endure the weakness and the temptation because we have the Holy Spirit and full assurance that our Father is going to bring us through to maturity even though we often fail. And in that, brothers and sisters, you're going to rejoice. You're going to find over the next several messages as we turn our attention away from who we are and our personal growth onto how our relationships will flourish within the body as we serve one another 
that your joy will grow as you see more and more the way that God works in us and through us and so often in spite of us. If you're relatively new to our church, we like to make it clear that we're not trying to hide the fact that we believe this is part of God's eternal covenant. That the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit before the foundation of the world came to an agreement. And that the Father chose those who would be saved. That the Son has come that He might be able to particularly and deliberately save those who were chosen before the foundation of the world, not based on anything that they had done or ever would do. And that as He calls them to Himself, each and every one will eventually come to a knowledge of Christ and belief in the gospel, and that that faith is in an object, is in the merit of Christ. And as a result, they are secure forever, and they can never fall out of His hand. See, this is the eternal covenant. This is the the redemption that everything that James will base his encouragement to good works is built upon. And so as we understand that, we can move forward in obedience with joy, not in fear. In fact, one of the things that we're going to do in a moment is celebrate the Lord's Supper. And in that, we remind ourselves of that very sacrifice that makes all of that possible. So as I pray, the children are going to come back in to join us so that they can witness this celebration. And then in a moment, I'll give you some instructions on how to partake. But let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for this book of James. And thank you for reminding us that endurance in the face of weakness and temptation is going to be the theme. And that as you prove yourself faithful to us, in spite of our unfaithfulness, uh, when you prove your resolve towards us in spite of our doubting, when you encourage us to come to you unwaveringly with confidence that you will do everything you've said that you will do, I pray that we would grow in our maturity, grow in our joy, grow in our happiness, grow in the fulfillment of the knowledge that we have everything that we need because of everything that you've done for us. Now as we prepare to come and receive these symbols of your body and blood, I pray that it would do its special work in our hearts to encourage us in our fellowship with you and with each other. In Jesus' name, amen.